0: Welcome back to another Lucid Health Podcast. I am Luke Tulloch. You can catch me at Luke Lucid Health on Instagram. You can also email me, Luke at lucidhealthcoaching.com. Let's get into it. Today, I'm going to do listener questions for the fifth episode of the Lucid Health Podcast. So let me get my phone and I'll check out the questions that I had on Instagram. All right, firstly, if you know my stuff, you know that I'm a fairly big proponent of using melatonin. It's one of the only supplements that I find is actually worthwhile. And so I have a question here asking, does melatonin supplementation considerations vary in male versus female population? And additionally, is long-term supplementation with melatonin considered safe? Now, on both fronts, I would say that yes, melatonin is considered safe in the long term. And we probably don't have quite enough data to differentiate any effects between males and females, but the data we do have would not suggest that there is any notable difference between the two. A lot of the longer term studies, six months to 12 months, have been conducted in females. Um, I'm not exactly sure why, but... Those are the populations that have been used. And again, if we're having supplementation of, in some cases, relatively high doses, three to five milligrams, I think one was even six milligrams over six months, um, we have some pretty good data on fairly high doses uh, over a reasonable time period. Now, of course, that's not to say that there is not a side effect or there is some other deleterious uh, potential side effect, or that we might not learn about in the future, however, given the current data, I would say it's pretty safe. We also know that uh, at this point, there is no downregulation of your natural melatonin production using supplementation. So it's not quite the same as some of your sex hormone uh, feedback loops like testosterone, for example, where if you use exogenous uh, testosterone from outside of the body, you get a downregulation of testosterone production in the body because it works in the feedback loop that the brain uses to detect how much testosterone it needs to make. That's not quite the case with melatonin as far as we are aware. So at this point, I would say it's pretty safe. Now, as for dosages, I said, you know, five, six milligrams is a fairly high dose. Personally, I like to use as low a dose as possible to get the desired effect of a restful night's sleep. For most people, I think that's between half a uh, milligram to maybe two milligrams. Uh, You can certainly go higher than that um, with a reasonable expectation of safety and effectiveness. I tend to find if I go over one milligram personally, I feel quite drowsy or groggy in the morning and anywhere between half a milligram to one milligram is plenty for me to feel well-rested the next day. So I would suggest you do the same. Buy the tablets in the smallest uh, dose possible so that it's easy to titrate as needed and then experiment with it that way. All right, so thanks for that question. Next one, asking about the case for using bands for beginners context a coach saying that if you don't bench three plates, you don't have to worry about the resistance profile. Well, the thing is, whenever we're training, what we're really trying to do if we're, say, trying to grow muscle or improve strength is that we're trying to put tension across the fibers. And the manner in which we do that is largely not the most important factor. It can be a a certain factor that we might want to take into consideration. Um, However, I think the primary fundamental principle that we have to get across is that we're trying to provide tension across the fibers. That's basically it. The manner in which we do that is, again, largely not that relevant. So it could be bodyweight exercises. It could be a variety of different implements from bands to chains to dumbbells to cables. I do think that as trainers, we should be aware of the strength curve or the profile of various exercises. You should understand that a cable bicep curl is very different from a dumbbell biceps curl and why it's different. You should understand the concept of a strength curve and a moment arm. But again, if we're talking about beginners here, I think anything that's gonna provide some sort of resistance is fine. You do have to understand that for some exercises, using a band is not gonna be ideal. I think most people can work it out by trying an exercise and if it's extremely awkward to perform. Using a band or something like that, then you know, don't do it, find something else. The reality is, for many of us, benching three plates is not all that impressive. If you are in the world of powerlifting or if you follow high level bodybuilders, that's not a very heavy weight. But the reality is, for the majority of the population, that is unattainable. I challenge you to refute this that. 95 percent of the population will never even get close to 140 kilo bench it's just not going to happen similar mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. a squat or a deadlift uh you know a 200 kilo squat is not particularly impressive for those of us who are you know strength trainees but for many many people that would be an unattainable goal i recall when i'd first uh, injured my back and i was rehabbing it and i went to a Cairo for a little bit to see how it would uh, go and I told him, oh, look, you know, I've started deadlifting again and I've gotten back to deadlifting about 180. And he was like, oh, mate, that's brilliant. How good is that? That's really awesome. And I'm sitting there thinking, well, you know, most of the girls at the gym I go to can deadlift around that or maybe even more, some of them. So, you know, in context, for me, a good deadlift is sort of 250 plus. Even, you know, 270 is not like wildly impressive for me, it's definitely good. Um, but putting it in context, I mean, that's just completely out of the realm of imagination for many people. So take things into context, uh, using a band or some other implement that's going to provide resistance for your client is really the most important thing. It's not what your preconceived idea of what a quote unquote, good bench press number is, or what strong is, it's all relative, and it's all contextual. Okay, the follow up question there was my thoughts on unilateral work. I use quite a lot of unilateral leg work because I have had a back injury that I mismanaged when I originally got injured. And I'm sort of stuck with the hangover of that where sometimes my back gets quite tight and I can't handle a lot of load directly on top of my back. So I've used a lot of unilateral work. Some of my clients will recognize that um, I really enjoy lunges and Bulgarian split squats to a sadistic degree. And I have done dumbbell lunges uh, in the triple rep range until failure, literal concentric failure. So, you know, it is something that I use quite a lot. And uh, as you know, my strongest body part is definitely my legs. So I feel that it hasn't hindered me using unilateral work to develop my legs as a bodybuilder. Now, I think there's a place for it. Again, it has to be contextual. If you're a powerlifter, you can't just do unilateral work. You have to do some bilateral work. You have to squat. You have to deadlift. If you are a general gym goer, you could make the case that unilateral work is possibly more applicable to their daily life and therefore maybe a better option in many cases. My advice is to mix it up. I think it's important to have some unilateral work in no matter what you're doing. I tend not to use it as much for the upper body. Uh, however, I could certainly see the utility in that. Um, and again, it, it, you know, it's going to be con- context dependent. So I, I really, I'm pretty agnostic when it comes to exercise prescription, whatever gets the job done, if you can justify it, then I think it's fine. No problem at all. Okay. Next up, I had a question about, uh, nicotine. I'd posted on my Instagram that I use nicotine gum sometimes as a study aid or to help my focus. Um, so I use this, maybe three times a week something like that two milligram uh, nicotine gum Uh, the way it works is basically you chew it a little bit and then leave it in your cheek and the nicotine diffuses across the uh, the tissue there uh, and into the circulation and then as you need more you chew more if you're unaccustomed to it you'll feel pretty sick if you use too much or if you go uh, chew it too much Uh, So start a little light and I would liken it to maybe the first time you have a lot of caffeine um, where you sort of get that hyper focus and you really feel a big stimulation. Obviously, it's something that is uh, addictive and it is a mild carcinogen, carcinogen, meaning that um, it, it obviously doesn't have all of the tar and the other chemicals that are in cigarettes, but it is still a very mild cancer promoting product so i wouldn't be using it too much just based on its addictive properties and that fact however i do find it pretty handy when i need that extra focus for study or whatever it is so that's something to try out if you like you can just buy that at the supermarket or the chemist it's not super cheap but uh, seeing as i use it quite sparingly it doesn't really matter too much Right, now the next question I had was about reverse dieting which is quite a popular topic at the moment. So let me just explain what it is if you haven't heard about it or why you might uh, hear about using it. The idea is that when you diet and you lose weight, your metabolic rate drops. That's a normal response to dieting. The way we normally measure resting metabolic rates, so if you just sat in a chair for 30 minutes doing nothing and we measured your metabolic rate, we call it the resting metabolic rate. The resting metabolic rate is very highly tied to your body mass so if you weigh 100 kilos and you're a male we would expect a certain resting metabolic rate it's usually pretty close obviously it changes depending how much muscle and fat you have that type of thing but it's usually within a a pretty close margin and if you were then to say lose five kilos of uh, mass we would then basically be able to calculate what your resting metabolic rate is based on your new mass of 95 kilograms. But your body recognizes when you're losing weight, and it has a protective mechanism where it slows down your metabolism. So if you had a person who weighed 95 kilos, and they had been weight stable at 95 kilos for many months, and you had someone who had just been 100 kilos, and had lost five kilos to get to 95 kilos, what we would actually find is that the person who has dieted would have a lower resting metabolic rate than the person who is identical in every other way but has been weight stable at 95 kilos. We call this adaptive thermogenesis where the body adjusts your metabolic rate based on the fact that you have been losing weight and therefore we get a lower than predicted metabolic rate based on your body mass. Again, adaptive thermogenesis. Now, the idea here is that if you are losing a lot of weight and your body is continually slowing down your metabolic rate, then when you try and go back up to maintenance, you're suddenly adding a bunch more calories over your predicted resting metabolic rate and you're gonna put all that back on as fat. So the way people try and get around this is to slowly, by increments, increase the amount of calories that you eat and that way the body gets a chance to, in a stepwise fashion, match its metabolic rate again. Um, Now, the issue here is that we have quite a lot of data of people who were literally starving, like literally starving to death uh, in certain experiments that recovered their metabolic rate just fine by going back up over maintenance, and so we don't get what we call metabolic damage, or has been known as metabolic damage. The idea here being that you can permanently alter your resting metabolic rate. So if you diet too hard, um, the idea is that you get this reduction in resting metabolic rate, this adaptive thermogenesis, and then uh, it's very difficult to regain that, or impossible to regain your original resting metabolic rate again, because your your metabolism is now quote unquote damaged. So this is not what happens. Um, we have a fair bit of data at the moment showing that you can get a recovery. So the the response to dieting and having a uh, lowered metabolic rate, that adaptive thermogenesis is a normal response to dieting. And it can be completely recovered within uh, within a week, sometimes within two weeks, okay. So it doesn't take too long of eating a maintenance amount of calories again, to recover your metabolic rate. In extreme cases, it may take a little bit more than your new maintenance rate of energy expenditure to recover your metabolic rate but it still recovers nonetheless. So I think at the moment the data is certainly in favor of there not being an issue with uh, what's been termed metabolic damage and therefore I don't think reverse dieting is an appropriate measure in most circumstances. I think as soon as possible once you are done dieting or you've gone through a dieting phase whatever it is you should be going back up to what your new maintenance is. We can calculate your new maintenance and then we can track changes in your body composition via weight or uh, other measures as well to make sure that it is actually at maintenance level. But the idea is that you should get back up there as soon as possible. Why should you do that? When you go into a deficit, your body seems to sequester the energy it has available to it. In other words, it allocates it to where it is needed most. And you'll see this in, for example, athletes or people who are dieting to extreme measures, where especially in females, it's quite obvious that they lose reproductive function because they lose their period. So what happens is the body has a limited uh, amount of available energy coming in. And of course, it needs to allocate as much energy as possible to movement because there's just no getting away around the fact that movement costs energy. And so your body needs to allocate energy to that. Once that's been taken care of, the next most vital functions are taken care of as well. And so your organ systems obviously get allocated the energy that they uh, need to do their job. But the less important uh, systems, such as your reproductive system and your immune system, which are less immediately important, but obviously chronically quite important or in the long term, quite important, they don't get allocated the energy immediately. They're sort of last on the list. So This is uh, what we call a triage theory. So In in triage theory, um, you might have heard of this from a first aid perspective where if you have a bunch of people arriving at the hospital at once, you obviously attend to the people who have the most immediate need first and the people who are less urgent you attend to later. You don't deal with it in the order that they come in, you deal with them in the order of importance. This works for Uh, vitamins and minerals as well. So there was a researcher called Bruce Ames who is a cancer researcher and I believe he's still alive but if he is he's probably in his 80s by now and he came up with this idea of triage theory of nutrients meaning that incoming vitamins and minerals are also allocated to the organ systems and the functions that require them the most first or the most uh, important to survival and everyday function and the ones that are less urgent don't get allocated those vitamins and minerals And so over time, you may develop this deficiency because uh, certain tissues or organ systems or chemical reactions in the body are not receiving the vitamins and minerals they need to continue to operate most effectively. So it seems that this happens with energy as well. So the idea is that obviously the longer we diet and the more extreme the deficit we go into then these organ systems such as your reproductive system, immune system, and obviously other functions within the body may be uh, sort of underfed with energy as we go along. Now, all this is the roundabout way of saying you need to bring your energy intake back up to the levels required for all of your tissues as soon as possible once you've done with a dieting period, because your health is at risk when you are dieting in extreme circumstances for long periods of time. The second point is that psychologically getting the food back to where it was is really important too. Um, There are issues with people obviously spending too long in extreme deficits, and they find themselves uh, recalibrating what they think is a normal eating pattern. And sometimes this can take a pathological eating pattern. And finally, uh, the risk of actually wasting time, the opportunity cost of not using the time spent where you are reverse dieting is also a risk. So if you spend, um, let's say a month or two months reverse dieting back up to your maintenance calories when you could have just gone straight back up there, you've wasted that time where you could have been using that to rest and recover, reduce your fatigue, reduce your mental fatigue, um, and actually train actually train hard uh, and allow more nutrients to come into your body. So, you, you know, let's say you're doing multiple dieting periods throughout your training career, you could end up losing years of your training, productive training life um, because you're reverse dieting and there is no additional benefit for doing this. So, in my opinion, reverse dieting is not something that I would typically use. I don't recommend it. The only situations where I find it may be useful is certainly when a client or someone is very uh, mentally, um, finds it difficult around raising their calories. Some people are chronically under eating and in order to get the metabolism back up to where you need it to be, they have to accept the fact that they're gonna put on some body fat. If I straight away have someone who is say, uh, been eating 2000 calories and I think they should be eating 2700 calories, if I straight away give them a, an extra 700 calories, the you can almost see the panic in their eyes sometimes. Um, and so it may just be a better approach for them psychologically to gradually increase that back up. Um, but in most cases, I wouldn't be using a reverse dieting approach where possible. Okay, next up, I get a lot of questions on mTOR, M-T-O-R. If you haven't heard of this, it stands for mammalian target of rapamycin. And this is basically the overall uh, integrator and um, control center for protein synthesis uh, in the muscle. And so it's a really important concept to understand. And if you've read anything on hypertrophy training, then you've probably heard of mTOR. Now, I think people get a little bit confused as to what exactly mTOR is. They've heard of it, they understand that it's necessary to be activating mTOR to grow their muscles, but they don't really know how that works. You've probably also heard a lot about various pathways for hypertrophy or mechanisms of hypertrophy for um, muscle tissue. And so the idea with mTOR is that it is the integrator of all of those signals. So let me explain what I mean. We all know that, for example, eating enough protein is important for muscle mass. We also know that resistance training is really important for maximizing muscle mass. So how do those two work? Do they both activate mTOR independently? Do they do it together? How exactly does this happen? Well, when I say integrator, I think probably the easiest way to do this is by analogy with another tissue in the body. So the main other integrator that I always think of is actually our brain. Our brain is constantly integrating information being sent to it from various parts of the body. We have various Uh, systems in the body that are dedicated towards providing sensory information for the brain to integrate. So when we do systems, uh, physiology in uni, uh, there's a particular branch of that called sensory physiology. And that's where you look at things like the rods and cones in your eyes, those are sensory neurons that are sending information back to the brain about light. We also have the ones in your ears, for hearing, we have ones in your nose for smell, obviously we have our taste buds for taste, but we also have various other sensors that are sending information back to the brain. Things like pressure sensors within the joints, things that are sensing stretch on the muscle, things that are sensing tension through the joints. And so all of those are sending information back up to the brain and they're not necessarily listening to each other. The brain's job is to collect all of that information and give us an overall picture of what's going on. And so our stream of consciousness, our concept of what's going on around us is the combination of all of this sensory information arriving at the brain. The brain's got to make sense of all of that, and give us an overall picture about what's going on in the world. And so we call that process integration. It's taking the sight of an animal running towards us, the sound of it growling, um, that type of information can be integrated, and then the response might be fear or something like that, right? So all of that information is integrated and gives us the response. Similarly, when we're lifting, um, and you can sense the uh, you know the stretch on the muscle, and then you get this discomfort sensation. That's basically your brain integrating all of the information of pressure, um, stretch on the muscle. Uh, that type of thing, and then providing a pain response to stop you from stretching too far, okay? So that's integration. Now, what mTOR does in the muscle is it has similarly multiple pathways that kind of arrive at the same spot, they get integrated, and then mTOR is essentially starting the process of protein synthesis, or it's not doing anything, and then we don't get any protein synthesis. So which signals are arriving at the muscle? to allow protein synthesis to go ahead or to stimulate mTOR. There are multiple pathways. There are pathways that involve training stimulus. There are pathways that involve nutrition as well. Some of the ones involving nutrition would be things like energy availability. That's why we need a uh, a surplus in energy coming in to ensure that we are optimally growing muscle. We also have things like leucine You may know of the amino acid leucine, there's a lot of work done on what we call a leucine threshold. When leucine hits a certain level, it is the primary stimulator of mTOR, it turns mTOR on. And once mTOR is switched on, we need all the other amino acids available to help build muscle. So protein, which is built of amino acids, and in particular, leucine is also an important signal to mTOR that it needs to integrate in the overall picture in synthesizing protein in the muscle glycogen stores can also be influential on mTOR on the training side of things we have things like mechanical tension metabolic stress the levels of anabolic hormones in our blood all of these different types of things and so this explains why we can retain muscle even if one of those things is not quite there so let's say we are dieting for a bodybuilding show we don't have one of the primary drivers of protein synthesis available to us. We don't have an energy surplus. We have an energy deficit, in fact, an extreme energy deficit. And this is a very, very powerful signal. However, if we do have adequate protein with enough leucine in it, and we do have the training stimulus, we can cancel out the effect of the lack of energy coming in. And so we're providing enough of a stimulus to mTOR, we're switching on mTOR enough to ensure that protein synthesis is taking place at a rate that is ensuring we don't lose any muscle. And so if you train enough and hard enough, if you get in enough protein with enough leucine, you should be able to retain all of your muscle mass or at least most of it, even though you might be dieting very hard and creating a large deficit. And of course, we call this net protein synthesis, your net protein synthesis is the sum of all of the protein that you're building, synthesizing, and all of the protein that is being broken down or catabolized in the body. And so overall, we want our net protein synthesis to be positive, meaning that we are growing muscle or at least retaining it. And that means that all of the signals going to mTOR need to be integrated to produce an overall positive result on muscle protein synthesis. Now, it gets a little bit more complicated than that, actually a lot more complicated than that, and we're still learning a lot more about the way mTOR works and all of the downstream pathways and you know, pathways upstream of mTOR that, that switch on mTOR. Um, but that's the basic idea, is that mTOR kind of acts as that regulator that integrates all of these various signals that are telling the body to either not produce more proteins and just let it break down or to synthesize more proteins in the muscle. Okay, So with my goal of keeping this under half an hour, I think I'm going to keep it uh, short and just stop right there. If you guys have enjoyed this, I would really appreciate it if you could subscribe. Uh, I'm now on iTunes, finally. It took like six weeks to come through on that, I think. So if you could rate me on iTunes, that'd be really helpful. Share with your friends, all that stuff. Um, And what I'll do is if you have more questions, I know there were quite a lot I didn't get to, Uh, please message me and I will do another episode of this. It's actually pretty easy for me to do, nice and quick and easy, so I can do that too. Um, And in the meantime, have a look out for some future podcasts coming up. I will also probably look to get some guests on, but obviously we are coming close to the end of 2018 now. So I'll look to do that in the new year. All right, thanks very much, guys. Once again, uh, at Luke Lucid Health on Instagram, or you can email me, luke at lucidhealthcoaching.com. Thanks very much, and I'll catch you in the next one.